Hello, how's it going? Welcome to episode 4 of the podcast. Thanks for stopping by. It's been something of a hectic couple of weeks for me. This coming Tuesday, I have my first official day as co-host of the brand new 2FM Breakfast Show, which is exciting and moderately terrifying and discombobulating and all these things. But I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in. I kind of came from gimmicky, light-hearted, bright radio. And that's where I built my career. And then the last couple of years, the show kind of naturally slid towards um, more kind of current affairs-y pop culture stuff, which some people really loved and some people fucking hated. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it kind of became kind of a polarizing show, which was an interesting space to be. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting back to the lighter, brighter side of things. And I guess that's kind of why I started this podcast with one eye on the tone change in the radio I was going to make, which is going to be kind of, you know, yeah, sillier and played for laughs and all these kind of things with the exceptionally talented Dieran Gerhi, who a lot of people in Ireland will certainly know, a talented lady and we're going to have a laugh. But I, I guess knowing that that was on the horizon, that's what this podcast is supposed to serve. Maybe stuff that has even a little bit of depth on it. We're not curing incurable diseases, but hopefully people have been enjoying what's been offered up. With that in mind, very excited to give you this episode with Nicola Coughlin, she of Derry Girls fame. She plays Claire. You'll get a couple of clips of her now before we hear her speak in her own voice. Um, Derry Girls has been something of a cultural phenomenon. It's a Channel 4 comedy series, etc. in the 1990s in The Troubles. Um, and it follows these 16-year-old girls and one tag-along boy. <laughs> it's the most watched TV series ever in Northern Ireland since they started keeping records in 2002. Nearly three and a half million viewers tuned in for the season two premiere, which wasn't so long ago. It was the biggest UK comedy launch for 15 years. Not only is it rip-roaringly funny, but there's a depth to it and an innocence to it. And I think the end of season one, this is... Not a massive spoiler, but a minor spoiler. So if you haven't seen it, cover your ears or skip 20 seconds. The end of season one, where the girls are on stage dancing in the talent show, having a great laugh. And then it cuts back to one of their family homes and everyone's crowded around the TV. And it shows the, the, the footage, the news footage from the OMA bomb, which has gone off and killed 12 people. And it cuts between them innocently dancing on stage, having a laugh, back to the family all standing around in stony horrified silence and then they fade in the cranberries dreams it's one of the best scenes that has been on a television show in years so like i say cultural phenomenon and nicola very much at the heart of it and she's an open book here she she talks about her really tough time you know both emotionally personally professionally before she got the dairy girls gig what it's done to her life since getting it her activism her late lovely father and his memory, and uh, a myriad of other things. So I really hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, please do the humane thing. Subscribe to my humble podcast. And also, I'd love if you are enjoying it too, that you would slap it on your socials and send people towards it. It's kind of an organic thing. I'm only really pushing it on my Instagram story, so I'm not deadly at social media. So the more help I have spreading the good word, the better. So enjoy. This is episode four of... What's my podcast called? Deep Diving. <laughs> With Nicola Coughlin, whose voice you'll hear in a second. This is her in action as Claire in Derry Girls. The fact that he's gone forever. It's so sad. It really is. It is so, so sad. But at the same time, you know what's done is done. So let's crack on. Oh, I'm sorry, Claire. Has his sudden tragic death interrupted your studies? Well, it has a bit, actually, yeah. Look. Whatever happened in there, we have to stick together, okay? We have to back each other up. Yes, okay, I was there. I admit that, but I didn't do anything. It was Michelle. It was 
Well, I think it's safe to say we all just lost a bit of respect for you there, Claire. Hi, Nicola Coughlin. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm very good. How are you doing? I'm well. We have to set the scene. Myself and Nicola, well, Nicola very graciously agreed to do the podcast. <laughs> and then I thought we had arranged for one day and Nicola thought we had arranged for a different day. <laughs> and I kind of said, I'm kind of stuck for an episode because <laughs> I haven't got any banked, which is podcasting rule 101, ah. bank episodes in case something exactly like oh. this happens. And I said, if you were around to do it on the weekend, we could, I can come to you on mobile. And you said... Come to Galway. Come to my childhood home. So we're sitting in the front room of Nicola's house, her home house, which is amazing. There's, um, a, lot of, there's a lot of pictures of me there like behind you. There's my headshot framed, which is, you know, overkill. But my mom likes that photo. It's a beautiful photo. That's me, the pudgy baby. Um, well, there's a lot of little pudgy babies, but I'm the one on the kind of little thing there with the teddy bear. My sister's like, why is this a shrine to you? <laughs> it's very annoying. Fair enough, I, I get it. <laughs> As you know, I had to drop off my girlfriend's little sister. Mm-hmm. She's a tomb girl. And I said I was coming here to do this. And she said, oh, Oren Moore is the black rock of, of Galway. <laughs> of Galway. It's, that is so funny because I've never thought of it as like a bougie place to be from. And it certainly wasn't when I was growing up. But it's like the Celtic tiger kind of came into Oren Moore and like tore it all apart and built loads of these new trendy buildings. Then there was the crash and I was like, oh, there's there's nothing to put in them. Uh. Oh, actually, just as I think for now, was it Oren Moore that they were supposed to build the big Apple factory and it didn't happen? Is that oh, right? Oh, maybe. I think there was something about that a couple of years ago that they thought thousands of jobs were coming to Oren Moore. Oh my God. And whatever reason it fell through. If it was Oren Moore, I remember the news was devastating at the time yeah, anyway yeah. because it looked like a done deal. But anyway. Maybe. We digress. <laughs> okay, let's fast forward a little bit. Yes. So you're in NUIG. Uh-huh. You studied... English and classics. English and classics. Um, so what happens then from NUIG too? Because you got a place in the Oxford... Yeah. Was it drama? Oxford School of Drama. School of drama. Was called. Yeah, so I was kind of embarrassed in a way to say that I wanted to be an actor because I didn't know any professional actors and I was like... Are they people? And I'd started like professionally acting quite young. Yeah. Because I always loved accents. I was like, as I said, strange kid. But used to love listening to them and copying them. But then, yeah, when I finished university, it became very real that I had to like make this choice. Yeah. And there was only I'd left it really on the long finger, so there was only two schools I could apply to. It was Lambda and Oxford, and I really wanted to go to Lambda. I had it in my head. I was like, that's the one. That's the one. Who's I wanted. been there that we know? Oh, um, Jim Broadbent, Dominic Cooper, Ruth Wilson. It's got like a really impressive alumni list. Yeah. But yeah, I just got fixated on it. I was like, that's the one. So I flew over to London on my own, did not know a soul, went to the audition and blanked out in the audition. Couldn't remember my speech. And they were like really nice. They're like, would you like to start again? I was like, yeah. Started again, blanked at the same point. And I was like, oh my God. Did you implode and leave or did you get through? Yeah, like they'd given me another chance and I couldn't remember it again. So I just left and felt so defeated and sad and was like crying and like knew I'd screwed it up. And then... Then I went, my Oxford one was like maybe a few weeks later and again went and stayed in like this random B&B in Oxford on my own and felt very lonely and, and isolated and went to the audition and they had like a morning session and then people that got to go on to the afternoon session. I didn't even get to the afternoon session. Right. And I had to get this like depressing bus ride back with all the other rejects back to like the city and was like, this is the worst thing in the world. And then... I got a call from them a few weeks later. They're like, look, we don't think you're ready for the three year, but we'd like to get you on our foundation course. Okay. And I couldn't believe it. So that was, yeah, six months there. And it was amazing because I felt like I'd found my tribe. There was like only 13 in my class and like they were just so talented. And I love that. But then I finished the six months and went to audition again to get on the three year course and I didn't get in. Wow. Okay. And I was 
completely devastated. As you would be. Like, uh, like just couldn't deal, didn't know what to do. And and so given that you had done the six-monther, yeah, did um, they give you feedback as to why or they just um, rejected They were stamp? like, we just don't think you're ready. And like, I think that the, I think that the guy that ran the drama school wasn't like a fan of mine because there was one day that we, he came in to speak to us and he, one of a girl in my class was like, oh, I'd, I'd like to maybe go to university and then do drama school. And he went, no, university is a waste for any actor. And like, I like couldn't just leave it be. And I was like, mm, I've actually already done four years of university. I don't think that's true because, you know, every person uh, that you meet. So like, I think that was the <laughs> a big part of the reason. Because like, I remember getting the reports back and I'd never like done so well at anything ever. And like, I used to like, I was like, I remember showing them to my parents being like, look, I got top in this and top in this. And oh my God. So I think it was more so that he maybe was like, well, she's going to be in a way. But I looked at some of them and I thought, no, you could really do with that university experience. Sure. But yeah, I thought that like there's been so many points like where I was like, this is my big chance and it's the end and it's not going to happen. But I think it's a lot of the time, you know, we have to say to people like success looks a certain way. Yeah. And people are like, oh, our dairy girls come out of nowhere and then you were doing great. And I was like, that's not <laughs> all. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's years of toil and slog. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot, a lot before that. On that note, though, so yes. I guess because we had Saoirse on the show. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was down for the Style Awards. Yeah. And it was only for a few minutes. But the thing that she said that stuck with me the most, yeah. and I wonder, do you have a similar story, is that she said before she got the break with Dairy Girls, mm-hmm. is that she was literally selling fruit and veg boxes yeah, 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 door yeah. to door as a way to pay bills. Mm-hmm. And I was going, that, that sounds like Last Chance Saloon. She yeah. said like she was kind of losing the will to trundle on. Where were you at before you got the break? Oh, I was very, yeah. I, I mean, I never wanted to give up. Like, this is just it, my complete passion. Yeah. Like, I just love my job so much. I love every part of it. I love doing it. I love, and one of the really nerdy things about it, I, I got interviewed by the Evening Standard magazine in London, picked like Rising Stars of the Year. Yeah. So it was like Jodie Comer and a girl called Patsy Farron, and I got one of them as well. And I was like, this is completely insane. Like, I'm still not at the point that I think people aren't just like, just being nice to me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, why? Why are you doing that? But they were like, what's one of your favorite things about the job? So without thinking, I went, making friends. But like, I genuinely mean that. <laughs> but it's lovely. one of the nicest parts. It really is because you meet so many people. Yeah. And, you know, they're generally really lovely. And like, that's, yeah, just like, like meeting people. Um, yeah, point that I thought I was going to have to give up. So I... I mean, there was a lot of them. <laughs> so I was living in London and hadn't worked for a really long time. I had an agent, but it's, I mean, I feel bad for the agents as well. It's not like I had a terrible agent. It's just that if they're not one of the top tier agents, they'll struggle to get you in for auditions. Sure. So I wasn't auditioning. And it used to frustrate me because I thought, you know, if I'm getting, ooh, if I'm getting rejected, that's my own thing. But if I'm not even getting in the room, yeah, there's sure. just nothing happening. Yeah. And then I was in a relationship and that broke up. And I was at just such a low ebb and I had to like move back home. And I was like in a really bad way when I moved home. Like I had serious depression. I like couldn't get out of bed. And I was like, well, that's it. Actual depression, you think? Yeah, definitely. It was really extreme. Like, yeah, just I couldn't get like my family just didn't know what to do, how to help me. But like my whole world had kind of crumbled. And it's always like I want to say to people, like, if you're at your lowest point, there is always a way through. And, you know, people, as I said, see things on social media. And I will try and not, like, not post boring stuff. But someone said, I ran into a friend and they're like, God, your life is so exciting. And I was like, no, you know, it's just not like, there's some like great stuff that I get to do, but like den- not all the time. Day to day, yeah. Day to day, yeah. Just like there's a lot of admin and things that are not interesting. But then I think, you know, we have to address that and take some responsibility for that. 
and say like, yeah, my life isn't like, I'm not always like at the BAFTAs. Yeah. I'm often like on a shitty 6am flight with like no makeup on feeling really sorry, like sorry for myself, yeah. you know, or, or like traveling around London on my own, which I often have to do. And so, yes, so I'd moved back home and was just in a really low place. And like my family were just amazing and really helped me out of it, but it was very slow. And so, yeah, and I don't want to be voyeuristic about no, that, but I guess I'm, I'm I'm interested in that. Yeah. How did that manifest itself? I couldn't get out of bed. And? Like there was times that I was in bed and I was like screaming, like physically screaming, because I was like in so much like the breakup was was really terrible and it just like shattered. Yeah, my life had fallen apart and I was like, I'm never going to, you know, my dream was to be an actor and to do this and I failed and I failed and I had like, I wasn't like broke. I had no money. There was no money in my bank account because I'd had to spend any, I had no like savings as such. I used to live month to month, but I had to, yeah, just like move home with nothing. So I was in bed lying there going, I can't even afford to go and get a coffee. That is how broke I am. The only thing like my parents were, you know, like I like they like welcomed me back home, of course, with open arms. They're amazing. But I just I didn't see any way out. I thought that's, you know, my life is done. That's how I felt. Yeah, <laughs> it was bad. It was a bad time. Like your life was done as in you were. I just couldn't. See, I thought there was no way out of my situation. I couldn't. I like, I literally couldn't. I was like, I have nothing to get out of bed for. I just don't like, it was so, it was like, I, it was such a scary time. That is scary. But I think my feelings on these things is the only way out of a situation like that is through it. I'm like a big, like feel your feelings person. But you know, I think if something bad happens to you, there's nothing wrong with going through it. I think if you try and like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. That's where the danger is. Yeah. And I think there's nothing wrong with sort of going, I'm really not fine. I'm really not fine. And, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I've been through other very tough things like since then. Like I lost my dad. And I'm not saying, oh, I have it all figured out. Like I really don't. And grief is really, really horrible and so tricky. But like, I think I know I've been at such a bad place. And I'm like, I... I got out of that very slowly. Like my sister made me start running and I like, I'd never done it before. I really didn't want to do it, but she just got me started doing it. And that was like a thing that really helped me out of it. Yeah. And it was just like, because I would have something to do. And I tried to like, when I got like a little bit better, I was trying to get a job, but I applied for like every coffee shop, every clothes shop. I couldn't get a job. Is this back? You're back in or more at this yeah, stage? Yeah, back in go. I couldn't get a job anywhere. Wow. It was insane. So I was like, literally had no money. And it's it's a horrible thing. I think I was like twenty eight at the time. It's horrible not. All to right, be- so you're you're late into your twenties at this yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. So it was like my for everything to kind of feel like it fell apart at that age was like, oh my god, I am such a failure. I have nothing going for me, you know. Like, yeah. And like having to go to your mum and dad and be like, can I borrow a tenner? Like that feels so shit. And you're like, oh man, like. Out of concern for you, almost yeah. was there was was there a narrative of. I don't mean dead poet society pushing yeah. parents way. You need to stop this acting almost for your own self-preservation. Yeah, I think my dad definitely found it difficult. And it just seems, it it seems so unrealistic because like, I don't come from an acting family. I was never surrounded by actors. It was completely my own thing that I wanted to do. But yeah, my dad found it hard. And like seeing your kid go through that much rejection and there has to be a part of you that thinks, why are they doing this? It's not worth it. And yeah. I totally understand. Not that they were like, they were always so supportive, but I, I'm sure it was like, really hard for them because even I had to take a loan out to go to drama school and I was thinking well I'll never how am I ever going to pay that off yeah you know it was just there were so many things weighing on me and I had guilt about even choosing this career and I thought why couldn't I have just been a teacher and not put this 
on everybody, put this stress on everybody. And they're always worried about me. And, you know, because a lot of it was me, you know, yeah, traveling on my own, having what little money I had, using that to fly for auditions, not getting them. Like That was just like a repeated thing for a really long time, you know. But, um, and then one day I went in for my eye test <laughs> and um, my opticians and I was saying how I couldn't find a job. And they're like, do you want to work here two days a week? And I was so grateful. I can't even explain to you. It was like such a relief. I mean, it wasn't obviously. I still had very little money working two days so a week. So many years. This is not that long ago. This is not that long ago. No, this was like... So I'm 32 now. I was 28. That's only four years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's like it's... But people always think like, what was the one thing? Like it was my sister helping me get out of bed and like start doing running. We did the um, the Operation Transformation 5K. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Go Operation Transformation. I know, right? But Make it a real difference. Yeah, it really did. It really, really did. And having that, like, um, a little bit of structure and then, you know, having the job to, 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 to go to, like, that was just, th- those th- were the things that helped. There was nothing like, wow, a magical thing happened. But I just slowly got a little yeah. bit better Every I, day. I guess you have to get to a point where you're either going to fall off the cliff or you're going to start to back away from it. So it's Yeah. And I didn't want to, I always think in life, like bad things will happen to everybody. Yeah. But I don't want to be defined by the bad things that happen to me. Sure. I really don't. And yeah. I was really d- determined about that. I thought I'm not going to let this be my, my story. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see how I was ever going to actually have a career at that point. There was no, again, had an agent, but was only going in for like commercial castings and stuff. And again, not blaming the Asian, it's just a hard industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, things did change. They did change. Let's yeah. let's jump to there because I do want to come back to your dad. Yeah, of course, of um, course. So, okay, so you, you get your job in the opticians. Yeah. You're out doing a little bit of running. You're feeling a bit better. So let's jump to how did Dairy Girls happen then? So there was one day I was um, I was on the bus, Aaron bus, back from the opticians, coming coming back to Orin Moore. And I was going through Twitter, as I often am. <laughs> but the Old Vic, which is a really amazing theatre in London, tweeted, they were like, we're having open auditions. And I had this thing where I was like, holy shit, this never happens. Oh yeah. my God. So I rang my mum. I was like, could you pick me up from the bus? She was like, yeah. And I was like, they're having open auditions. Can I go? And I came home, opened my laptop and just applied for a slot and then went, why did I do that? That's like a one in a million chance. I'm never going to get it. I've done open calls for stuff before. I've done drama school auditions for years and years, whatever. Um, and I was like, I'll just do it, whatever. And it kind of did feel a little bit like, is this my last chance? And I don't know. And I went, I flew over to London. The panel was about 15 people from this initiative called Ulvik New Voices. And there was about 30 actors there and everyone had like two, three minutes. So I was like, okay, whatever. I'll just try. Because when it's an open audition, you don't know what they're looking for. Sure. So you're just going like, I'm just going to do something. So I had been in a play a few years previous called Chapel Street, which is written by my friend Luke Barnes. He used to be an actor. He was in Game of Thrones for a couple of years. Okay. But he's an amazing playwright. And I was like, I'm just going to do a piece from Chapel Street because I did that play and it's amazing and I love it and whatever. And I watched a lot of people get up and just do... My friends call it the... Oh, you have to do it in front of everyone? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it, things vary, but that, that's what that was. But there was a lot of people that got up and did the classic, oh, my baby died and my husband's gone away to war and, oh, why is everything terrible kind of speech. And my speech was about... It was this girl, she was a northern character. It's like, it's really shit. It's really, really shit. It's just like a really poppy fun thing. And they give you three minutes, but I think I did like a minute and a half. Because I was like... There was something someone said to me years ago that they said no one ever left a show and said that was too short or it was too funny. So I was like, that always stuck with me. Yeah. And I was like, it's their job to know if I have any talent. So I was like, I'm just going to do. So I got up, did it, sat down and was like, okay, that's, I've done. I've done what I can. And then about a month later, I was in the opticians again <laughs> and they called me and they were like, 
yeah, we, we want you basically. So they saw 1500 actors and out of that group, they picked seven of us. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And basically it ended up, that was a show that I, it was called Jess and Joe Forever. And we got to perform it for the first time on stage at the Old Vic. And my mom and dad got to come over and see it. And, and it was just amazing. I was, it was just such a magical, I mean, that theater is, it's an incredible building. And like you got backstage and there's all pictures of like Laurence Olivier, Vivian Lee on the walls. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I was just trying to like, Again, if you go through hard stuff, it's made me go appreciate yeah. the moment. And I've, I used to, I used to not be able to live in the moment at all. But I think I've, with age, I've definitely gotten better at that. But I remember sitting on the stage as everyone was coming in. I going, I'm on stage at the Ulvik. Holy crap, this is amazing! So a year later, it was on at the Orange Tree, and I was like, I am not messing around here. I'm getting a new agent. I'm inviting every casting director in London. I'm going to use this opportunity. And it was a, an amazing show. And I was playing an English girl in it, which is like, it's nice because it can show you can do something a little bit different sure, yeah. than what you, you know. And my dream agents were, uh, these ones called Curtis Brown. And they represent people like Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, Harry Enfield, a lot of like the sex ed cast. Like they're, they're at the races, yeah. Yeah. They are the races. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're serious. But I had done my research over the years and like they were the ones I wanted because I was like, I love what their actors do and I love the kind of actors they have. And I was like, I just feel like that's my agency. So I would say I wrote two, probably about 60 agents, probably a hundred casting directors, one agent came to see me. That's how tough it is. I never wow. want to understate how tough this industry is. Because I mean, they're, get, they're getting inundated day to day being like, come see my show, come see this, read my CV. Da, da, da. Like you can understand. But the girl who had written the show was represented by Curtis, Curtis Brown. Brown. Yeah. So they came to see the show and they came to a matinee performance. And this theatre, the Orange Tree is in Richmond in London, which is a leafy suburb, West London. There's a lot of like elderly clientele. And often- Cliff Richard lives there. Does he? It's a really nice area. I yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Um, so a lot of the time in matinees, you have um, the, the front row sleepers and this theatre was in the round so everyone can see everything. So I knew the agent was in and I was like, these are people falling asleep. She's going to think this is shit. And the, you know, the reaction was quite flat. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. It's like, this was my one shot. And then she, I didn't hear from her. And then a couple of days later, I emailed. I was like, um, I don't know if you came. And I did know that she yeah, yeah, but I was like, I love get, me. I can get you a ticket again if you want it. And she was like, "Come in for a coffee." And I went in, met her, and her name's Emma. And we were talking for a while, and she was like, "What would you like to do?" Hilariously, the very first thing I said was, "I'd love to do a Channel Four comedy." No, yeah, I swear to God, I swear to God, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we were being very professional for a while, and then she was like, "She's like, can I just say I looked at your Twitter?" And she was like. I saw you love Drag Race. And I was like, oh my God. So then we just bonded over that and talked about that for ages. But then uh, she signed me in the meeting and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And then a few weeks later, we went on tour with Jess and Joe. It was still ongoing. And they sent me through my first script. They were like, this is your first audition with us. I was like, oh my God. So I opened the script and I saw this line and it was like, I'm not being an individual on my own. I was like, oh my God, the script is so good. Yeah. This is so good. This is not like, this is not normal. I was in the in the van with, with Reese, who was my co-star in Jess and Joe. And I was like, the script is brilliant. This is like, I've not read this, something like this. And that yeah, was my first audition with them. So Derrick's was the first audition. First audition did. I had with them. But I didn't get it. Like I had a bunch of auditions between starting. Derrick was auditioning for six months, which was torturous. <laughs> they you, did you, six months worth of auditions? Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Because yeah. they, they really, Carla Strong is our casting director and she's amazing and she's won Emmys for Game of Thrones and stuff. But what I think she does really well is she fits the actors together really well. Yeah, okay. And that's just not easy to do because you just don't know how these different personalities are going to fit but yeah it was, it was six months of that so I auditioned back I don't know if I'm gonna get the date right August I want to say 2016 so that was my first audition and then I got it in March I think 
Okay. 2017. Yeah. Now this this is I suppose this is the this is the sad bit. Yeah. You mentioned your dad. Yeah. He, how long was it? it um, was only a sh- he passed away five days before I got the Roland Dairy Girls. So it was. I mean that it's it's that always is going to be such a pisser to me. Yeah. That's really hard because he never. I think you know, like any any child with parents, you just want to you know make them proud. And he would have loved all of this. Like, like when we go up to Derry, like they, you know, treat my family so amazingly sure. well. And I've gotten to bring my brother and my sister and my mom up. But like dad would have loved like meeting the mayor and being in the guild hall. And so there's always that tinge of like, I'm so grateful for all the amazing things that have happened. But it is so hard that he's not been able to see it. He saw Jess and Joe, though. And he was, he loved, he loved that. Yeah, okay. And um, he used to say, oh, it's very humorous, very humorous. And um, yeah, he. I came down. I came down the stairs one day, and him and my mom were in. I, I was looking for them. I was in the foyer, and I was like, "Where's my, where are my parents?" They're like, "I think they're still in the theater." And they were like holding court. And my dad was like, "This woman wants your autograph." And I was thinking, mm, "Doubt it." <laughs> but like, so I think like at least he got to see that. But it's. I mean, Dairy Girls is obviously now such a huge part of my life. So it's just, yeah, it's and really it's, hard. It's. Beloved. It's insane to me. Not only is it like the in-betweeners was beloved, but this yeah. is also, it's deeper than that because Jerry Goes is funny, but it's also, it's poignant and it's history. Yeah, it, it, I just can't, like, honest to God, my feelings of what was going to, what Jerry Goes was going to be, I adored the script. Like, I, it was so just word perfect, every bit of it. It just had no wasted lines. The characters were so clear from the off. Except I thought Orla was like a mean jock. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, because like I, um, when I'd read Other this... than a space cadet, like... No, but I I, I read it as like, because I read the scene that was in the shop where, you know, Claire is trying to get them to sponsor her for, for the fast for Ethiopia. And then I read Orla's line, oh, does he just really enjoy Wells? There's this one wee fella, Kamal. He's only 10 and every morning he walks 25 miles to the nearest well. Does he just really enjoy Wells, eh? I was like, I thought she was going to be like really sarky. Yeah, yeah. And apparently... The character was meant to be kind of sarky, but then Louisa just came in and did this really weird sort of. So she just totally flipped it. So I remember on the on the chemistry read when I first met the girls, and Louisa started talking. I was like, "What the hell?" Like what I did not doing? anticipate that, you know. But I mean, obviously, she's completely perfect. And yeah, it's a female like comedy, which you know, if you'd seen like the reaction for the the Ghostbusters a couple of years ago, was so you know so much vitriol and you know anger about that so I thought well there's going to be a huge part of our audience that's just gone right away because they're not going to like a female like comedy and I was like it's really specific and doesn't compromise its voice at all mind you that's in a funny way it's probably not a great equivalency because I yeah. think people just by the virtue of the fact Ghostbusters has a, a legacy totally, you guys had a blank yeah. canvas to create yeah. this universe but I just you just don't I mean you you have no idea you cannot predict yeah. how it's going to go down and I even said it to Dylan. Um, I was like, look, the Irish audiences are dead honest. I was like, so if people don't like this show, they'll just say. And I was like, but we'll just be prepared for that. And yeah. I thought it would have like a little cult following that would adore it. But I like, no way. Oh, yeah, what's the, I have it written down here. As I say, I spilled tea on my arm, but more oh, no. importantly, the cushion. Oh, oh it's no. fine. It's fine. Here, so the Italian here drop. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Where is it? Oh, yeah. It's the most watched TV series ever in Northern Ireland since modern records began. <laughs> um, and it's the biggest UK comedy launch in 15 years for Channel 4. So, yeah. yeah and the biggest comedy launch on all four ever. 
as well. Oh, there you it's go. Another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is this? Oh, I suppose just to wrap up the thread um, yeah. about your about your dad. Mm-hmm. Look, what was he like? Uh, he was in the army. Yeah. From when he was seventeen. Yeah. And then, so I'm like, imagine a man in the army then having like your youngest daughter be like, I'm going to be an actor. You'd be like, oh. It's the least disciplined existence oh, I one know. could imagine. And like, so I'm like such a scruff ball and like all of that. I look, I, that's, that's us there. That's me and my dad there. Oh, hey, dad. It's my, it's my university graduation. So I look a lot like my dad. Yeah. Like he'd done a lot of amazing stuff. He um, was in the Guard of Honor at JFK's funeral. No. Yeah. How? So he, it's, it's an amazing story. Basically, he was a cadet in the Curra and the year before JFK, um, was killed he had done a tour in Ireland and they'd gone to the Curra camp and they he'd gone with Jackie and they'd seen this rifle drill and John F. Kennedy was just like oh my god this is amazing we just had like a real just obsession about it and then when he was killed Jackie wrote to De Valera and was like I want the cadets to come and be at his graveside and do like the final drill at the graveside so it was him and I don't know how many of them I'm gonna say 12 but that could be incorrect got to got were chosen and got to fly over to Washington with Dev on the plane and um yeah and then he was like at the graveside if you see the footage of the graveside should I show you a little bit yeah it's really not conducive to the actual actual podcast but it's all right TG Carr found out about it a couple probably like 10 years ago yeah they came and they made a documentary about it and they brought them back to Arlington Cemetery with with two of his classmates this is my dad it's just his profile here on the on the right it's on the on the plane with Dev Wow. Yeah, they're there at the gravesite. Wow. Yeah. That's history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really amazing. But he, yeah, I was a very humble man. And at um, the funeral, the, the main thing anyone said about him, this man that had, you know, done so much and had been part of history and had gone on so many peacekeeping missions. He was in Honduras. You know, as I said, they were in Syria. He was all over, like, doing amazing things. But the main thing anyone said about him is how kind he was. Yeah. And that really, that just stuck with me. Yeah, okay. And it's always been like, I think it's something that I always try to be, if I can. Yeah. Just being kind is, it's an like an underappreciated virtue, I feel like, you know. You can always take time to be kind to people. I think people appreciate kindness. I know, but sometimes, I mean, I've had it, I've had it backfire on me. I've had, you know, in relationships and stuff, like people sometimes do see it as a weakness. Yeah. And I think because I have always looked younger than I am, I've had people sort of think they can sort of, you know, push me around or do this and I go, no, 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 no. And in terms of like how, because because the, the success, it was explosive. It wasn't yeah. like a slow, bur- or slow burn or whatever, a slow build. So now all four, all five of you are, yeah. all six, all seven, throw in as many names as you want. Sure. Um, you're all household names immediately. It's bizarre. So how has like, how has your life changed? It's funny because post series one, I I mean, I was in London. I was filming a show called Harlots at the time. And I was filming out in the middle of nowhere in this like some period of history house that I have since forgotten. Um, so I was doing that most of the time. And then I uh, straight after that, I went in to the Donmar doing a play. So I wasn't like around the town <laughs> like that much. And I certainly wasn't home. Yeah. But Jamie Lee, who plays Michelle, she lived in Derry and she was, she was like, girls, it's mental. And at first I was like, no, it isn't. No, it's not. She was like, I can't leave the house. I was like, oh, no, that's not true. And then when we came back to film the second series, I was like, oh, it is mental. It's really crazy. Like, you know, you're just trying to go down to the shop and then you're like, you know, people are following you. And we had like, it was hilarious because like, especially like teenage girls will get in a, a group and just follow you from shop to shop. 
and at one without, point without coming up yeah yeah okay but at one point jamie lee we were we were in lush in belfast and at one point like they were just right behind us jamie lee was like right do you want a photo <laughs> <laughs> and she was like we'll all get one in together this was charming for 30 seconds girls yeah <laughs> i mean people are so sweet but it is just quite mad like and even yesterday i said a guy chased i was in a i was in a car getting a lift home and a guy like chased after the car and i was like this is so insane and then we kind of pulled up in traffic and he just ran after the car and i like was just a granny he was like he's gonna get knocked down oh my god and he was trying to get a photo and then we had to drive on i was like this is so mad enjoyable it's you know people are so nice but you, i forget all the time <laughs> and, and has it has it led you to has it led you to some intense conversations because i think like one mm. thing i thought was was very obvious is with Lyra McKee being shot yeah. recently is the amount of particularly younger people on Twitter that I saw yeah. tying her death to Derry Girls just yeah. by way of a reference just to place it to contextualise it and actually even even I did that myself because yeah. I was talking about it on, on the radio show and I played a clip of there was a teenager who was on Claire Byrne live Yes, I've seen a couple this. of months yeah. previous and she was going we grew up in peacetime. She's like, mm-hmm. I'm 18 years old. My only reference for the troubles is Derry Girls. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it it definitely does. And I like, I don't want to put anyone on blast, but I was asked to go on TV and talk about Lyra McKee, and I just thought that's not appropriate because you're you're thinking that I'm some sort of expert on the situation. I'm not, and especially in the UK with the press, there I have to specify. Like, I am from Galway. That is in the Republic of Ireland. Southern Ireland is not a place. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't exist. But people, like I said, what was it like growing up during the Troubles? And I'm like, I don't know yeah. what that's like. So I'm all, always aware to not speak for the people of Northern Ireland. Like, I'll try and, like, amplify their voices if there's a cause that I, you know, feel like they're being unrepresented in. But that's about as much as I can do. And, yeah, you get asked such... Like, Siobhan McSweeney, who plays Sister Michael, and I did a march on Parliament to protest the abortion laws in Northern Ireland. Well, we're going to get to that, but let's jump it was in. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it was it was terrifying. Like, and you you just sort of do, what am I doing here? And I mean, the amount of press to Amnesty were like, we never had this amount of press an event before but it was like I mean one reporter was like what do you think your character in Dairy Girls would feel would she be pro-choice and I was like I can't answer that that's not appropriate like they're Lisa McGee's characters I cannot infuse them with no, any no not at all that's not my place to do that we definitely do and it's with Brexit and everything we get asked like really hard-hitting questions and like we did this one interview we got asked about it a lot but then you know, you're asked a question, so you answer it. But people will go, oh my God, what do they think they know about this or that or the other? And you're like, well, I was just asked a question. And I- do people offer you a personal stories about that time? Oh, or- yeah, a lot, a lot. The thing I find when people want to meet you, like a lot of the time they want you to just hear their story. And I think you got to give people that time or yeah. they'll tell you like funny things that have happened to them or all that stuff. And I, we have Funny had- by like terrible. No, 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 no. Like good, like nice stories. Oh, okay, just, like, okay. Stories that relate to stuff from the show and... But I think we have had, I never anticipated the support that we got, even yourself after the BAFTAs. But like, that was so nice. Like everyone was like, no, no, you were robbed. And you're like, well, thanks that you think so. It's great. Like, do you know? Well, I think everybody felt that like that. Oh. Okay, come on, real talk. I assume, <laughs> I assume you thought you guys had a good we, shot. Yeah, we definitely did. Um, And oh, we did the red carpet. You did the red carpet for like an hour pre going in and you can see everyone having like the champagne reception you're like I just want to go in for a minute just for like one drink but you just have to like you know do the whole whole thing but everyone was like well you're gonna win tonight and you're like maybe I guess are we but we kind of knew a little bit before because when they film the losers they get right into you with the camera whereas the winners the camera's at a distance so when they were announcing the categories the cameras came up to us and Siobhan McSweeney was sitting beside me and she went we didn't win and I was like oh no damn it we didn't 
And we were quite, we were in like row R. So when I got our tickets, I was like, oh, we're a bit far back. So it was a couple of little things. But yeah, we kind of, we knew before we had our like, you know, happy loser faces did, did on. Did it take the, st- the, the crack out of it a little bit? Yeah, it totally does. Like you are, it is it real, like... This is going to sound really shitty, but we've been to a bunch of awards and we've won all the ones that we went to. So you're like, this is great crack. And then you're like, this is the big one. That this you is the big one. On yeah, this is the one that yeah. everyone knows. And then you're like, oh, what a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, mother- you can't drink during the ceremony. So you just sort of sat there with like a bottle of water and like, you know, your 10 pairs of spanks going, oh man. I want to go home. I was going to come to this later, but since you mentioned it, yeah. something happened at the BAFTAs that had happened kind of previously oh, yeah. and the two things were threaded together, which mm-hmm. is the mirror <laughs> yeah. of things to say about that paper, but I'll save them for another day. <laughs> they said something unflattering about your dress. Yeah, I was, well, we were at the dinner, uh, we were starving because I mean, you get there for about four and you don't eat till nine. Yeah. So everyone is like dying for the dinner. So I was like sat at the table and then yeah, I got this one tweet. They were like, how dare the mirror say this about you? And I was like, what do they say? And then she screenshotted it and I was like, you're wrong. I look smoking. Sorry about it. And but then that like completely blew up. <laughs> like, and I wasn't like upset. I was just like, oh, you're such... Trying to f- what did they actually say? They said like my dress... Just wasn't, wasn't flattering. flattering. Or, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that dress is damn flattering. Like just purely incorrect, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I loved your response. But, uh, uh, but And to, fo- to, to give the full context, there was mm-hmm. one prior to that, a review of Jess and Joe Forever... Yeah. And the British Theatre Guide made reference to your weight. Uh-huh, yeah. An overweight little girl who will always become the butt of her fellow immature humours. Yeah, it was just... So it was this guy, I won't even say his name, but he came to see that show in Edinburgh and that show is so, so special to me. Yeah. And the characters are really complex and really... And there's sort of stuff in it about that sort of hints that this girl has an eating disorder, but it's lightly touched upon and then she can't really go in. the the story was direct address you're speaking to the audience yeah so it's like two young kids and they're telling you their story but that was the only thing he said about my performance she's an overweight girl and i was pissed off and i uh, the playwright zoe cooper got in touch with british theater guide and they they just removed the word but like never said an apology or anything right then i was at the Donmar post dairy girls coming out um in a play called the prime of miss jean Brody. that's based on a novel by muriel spark that was written in the 60s about the 30s and my character was called Joyce Emily Hammond. And she was this very rich girl, but she had a lot of problems. She was very socially unaware. She was awkward. She did not mix with the other... Like, I don't know if people are, know the story of Jean Brody, but she's like an inspirational teacher that sort of, you know, goes away that all the inspirational teachers go. That, you know, she thinks she's amazing, but then she's this dark side or whatever. So my character was completely left out of the Brody set yeah. of her chosen people. So she's nine in the first act. I mean, stage, you've got to... The suspension of disbelief but she's not in the first act and then in the second act she's become kind of radicalized that her brother wants to go to spain to fight franco's forces and she gets really into that and she's all about like no passaran and all this stuff and we done serious research on this show like we researched the edinburgh school system in the 30s i researched franco i had to learn an edinburgh accent you know you want to learn the change in physicality she's nine in act one but then she's a very different person in act two but she's still a teenager but she's you know so there was lots of stuff that like went into the performance basically and then that was the first review that came out and he said, Nicola Coughlin playing Joyce Emily Hammond, the kind of overweight girl that's always the butt of her classmates' jokes. And there was literally zero reference in the novel, in David Harrower's script, anywhere about the character's weight. And I saw the other girls that auditioned for the role and there was tall girls, short girls, there was black girls, there was Asian girls. It wasn't about look, it was about being the right actor for the role. Yeah. But I was like, you've just put that on it. You've just decided... 
that that's the only thing worth commenting about about me and like I take my job really seriously I worked so I worked so hard I was like no not good enough I'm sorry and then so I tweeted about <laughs> like with the with the backing of the Donmar and Josie Rourke who who was the artistic director at the time she directed Mary Queen of Scott and she was like I'm behind you and you've got you know we you have our full support on this but then that then completely blew up like went so like viral and I it was quite overwhelming because it's a personal thing too you're like you're, I was gonna say it's really personal it's, it's great that you clapped back yeah but but also it's that Streisand effect of now mm-hmm. everybody knows Massively. this is the thing you have to talk about or you are talking about or have been forced yeah. to talk about or whatever and it, it like and it was so tough because I there's a vulnerability in performing on stage yeah you're just going out there and you know you're being judged but then I thought this pisses me off because now is there an added thing that people are looking and weighing me up literally when they watch this show and I thought that's so annoying to me that like I've worked way too hard to get to this point to then be reduced to that so I got offered to do so many interviews about it and so many and it was just overwhelming and it was just kind of like too much in a way so did you shut them down did you not I do shut interviews? all the interviews down and I'm aware like even not always in a negative way, but with print interviews, I've like seen how words could be twisted and not necessarily malicious ways at all. But like there was some interview that talked about me living in Dublin for years and I've never lived there. Yeah, okay. Just like things like that. But I've seen how things could get twisted to fit a certain agenda. And I was like, I'm not doing that because I'm not. But then The Guardian got in touch and was like, would you like to write about it? We'll give you full editorial control. That was the only way I felt comfortable doing it. And I took my time. I took about a week writing the piece. And just, yeah, it just basically made the point of like, you were there to review my work. You only reviewed my body. You did it twice. But like funny how there was no apology before I was on the TV. But then it was like, oh, there's an apology because yeah. now people actually know who you are and it's made a lot of noise. Yeah. So I was like, that's just also very annoying to me because obviously it wasn't worth your time before. The- anyway, people still kind of misunderstood what I was saying because there was some people are writing but one of them was like this body positive actress and I was like that's not my point I am not in the position to offer that to people yet because it is weird going from a private person to like a public figure what felt like overnight and I can't say like that I feel 100% confident or great all the time and I was like I can't and I said that piece said it's not your business my body's not your business but even with the Baptist thing people are like look she's body positive and I'm like Oh, why am I body positive and like Saoirse, Louisa and Jamie Lee aren't? Oh, okay. That's so it's because I weigh a certain amount. You've decided I'm body positive. And I know it's sort of selfish me to say like, I can't be in that position, but people want a lot from you when you're in the public eye. Sure. You get asked to do an awful lot of things. But I was like, I just, I'm not in that position that I can give that much. Even there was times where I thought about tweeting like I'm only a size X or I only weigh this much. And you're telling me that I'm this huge, you know, giant of a woman. Like I'm five foot tall. I'm really tiny (laughs) but I was like you just you know what you see on tv and like the expectations that women are under so immense and even Richard Madden came out recently and talked about the pressure that men are under as well because I got so many messages from actors like privately publicly that have had to deal with this Richard Madden about physicality for men talking about yeah how like he you know you're expected to have the certain certain body type and like people were like "Mm, well women have had to deal with it for ages so I thought that's not right I'm sorry but like you're a human being and having people pull apart how you look is so difficult and I would challenge them not to to find that hard and people like well you've put yourself in that position it was completely terrifying to do and like the kind of thing like people are like oh you love talking about this I'm like I hate it oh really I love talking about like 
trivial shit. Like I would, if you were like, I want to come to your house and we'll talk about Love Island for two hours. I'd be like, mm, yes, absolutely. Let's do that. Great. But do I you just... know I'm, I'm the Australian Love Island narrator. Oh my God, what? Yeah, I narrate I the Australian Love Island. I actually didn't know Love that, Island. but I just yeah. got very... <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. <gasps> You, yeah. should, you could do a cameo on it sometime oh in the my voiceover if you like. You're very welcome. Oh uh, yeah, because I, I, yeah, I was doing that play, Jean Brody last, and I had to like I got murdered every single night by fascists, which is really sad. Yes. I had to cry all the time. Like she's, I was like, oh, it's all terrible. So I'd like go back to the flat and just like put Love Island on. I was like, oh, this is my time. I needed it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to have to talk about this shit at all. I feel like I've taken up so much of your time. No, oh my god. So I want to blitz to one or two other things. Of course, I like that you're so principled enough that you will keep tweeting about stuff you feel is important mm-hmm. even if you'd rather not have to yeah um do you mind the kickback you get off some people because i've seen some people doing things like oh i'm such a fan of the show but i won't watch it now <laughs> because you're advocating yeah, this thing yeah. that i don't agree with i mean where the way i feel about it is so stuff like with the with the repeal the eighth and stuff like that i found that so emotionally taxing yeah i really did but i felt like because i've had friends that had to make that journey so it felt very personal to me. So I kind of thought if I go out there and I kind of stand on the front line of it, I will take the hit so that they won't have to. And I didn't like the thought of someone who had to suffer that. Because like the times like I was saying to you, when I went to England on my own to do the drama school auditions, I found that so isolating, lonely, and I cried in a room on my own. But I was like, if I had to go through that experience that these women are, are forced to go through, I can't even imagine how traumatizing it would be. And I know people that have been traumatized by that experience. So I thought, I don't want them to have to get that. So I was like, I will stand up and, and, and do it and whatever. And, you know, I felt the same about about the marriage equality thing. Like, I'll, But I'm like, if I feel like this is morally right, and I feel like it's at a time now for Northern Ireland where these things, you know, are on the cusp, but they really could just change. So I'm like, I'm going to stick at it. But I mean, I'd I'd rather (laughs) rather not have to. And did Channel 4, I I suppose they're a commercial. Like I, regardless of what I believed, um, either way, I couldn't be an activist working for RT. But Channel 4 is a commercial broadcaster. It's a commercial broadcaster. I mean, when everything boils down to it, I'm an actor first and foremost. It's what my passion is. It's my life. It's everything. But... You know, and I'll, I'll always think before I tweet. My my agent's like, you know, just always think about it. And I'm like, and I don't ever want to put anyone else under stress. Sure. And I'd never like start beef with someone or like anything like that. Um, finally, finally. Yes. One of the big character arcs. This is kind of a spoiler for season one. If you haven't mm-hmm. seen it, this is your ample warning. Mute or skip 20 seconds down the line. <laughs> um, at the end of season one, um, Claire comes out as gay. Mm-hmm. And I read an interview you did where you said you consulted some of your pals who were gay yeah. to make sure you got that story arc or even that scene where you talked to Saoirse right. Yeah, it was so scary to film that. There'd be more chance for being you. It is me. No, I mean, I'd be less surprised if it was you. It is. No, it's not. But if it was... Erin, it's me. I'm the wee lesbian. I so you are, Claire. I'm not joking. You're... You're a lesbian. I've never been brave enough to say it out loud before, but I think that's why I wrote this story, and then it all got too real, I got too scared, but now, well, you've made me realise it's all okay. Don't blame me. What? You fancy gears? Well, that's sort of an entry-level requirement, Erin. I think I'm going to boke. Do you mind? I'm trying to come out here. Well, don't. Don't come out. Go back in. I don't want to go back in. We filmed at the end of week one, so we're like... Sirish and I hadn't even known each other for that long, but we had to seem like lifelong best friends. And it was such a serious thing to deal with. And it was, if that had been a drama, I always say this, but it would have been so much easier to shoot that scene. 
because he would have just played it for the for the notes that's there and for, for you know pretty much as read but it's meant to be funny yeah but Saoirse and I were like, how are we going to balance this out? And we were like, not convinced that we got it right. And Mike Lennox, our director, was like, it's fine. And we, we, we shot it like a bunch of times, which you just do anyway. Sure. But we were not convinced that we'd gotten it right. And I was like, I don't want it. it. We want it to be funny, but I don't want to make it seem like I'm making fun of someone's experience. Yeah, it was so scary. I wasn't convinced we got it right. When I saw it, I went, okay, I think we did fine. I think that was okay. I don't know. But I, I know because I get so many messages from people being like, I'm, we're so grateful for the representation. I mean, that's all Lisa McGee like. And she's, and Lisa said she kind of did write the scene with, with rose-tinted glasses because she's like, she's not sure that Claire would have had that huge, you know, welcome response. And so she she admits that it's, but I'm like, why not? We need, like, representation is so important. Yeah. So important. Yeah, and I think especially for the people in Northern Ireland, like I went up and visited a charity about a month ago called the Rainbow Project in Belfast. Yeah. And like they're so underfunded and, you know, they're really up against it, but they're doing just such amazing work. You just think that that community is so underrepresented still. They're really being pushed to the sides and things are, they're like talking about how things are getting worse for them. And there was a, a, a trans girl there and she was like, we're just getting shit on in the media right now. And I'm like, that's not, that's not good enough. I think that if there's like really loud negative voices, which unfortunately there are, and they're getting a lot of airtime, there needs to be people that stand up and go, no, I'm a positive voice. I'm going to, uh, vice voice, I'm going to support you. I have your back here. I'm not like, I don't want you to feel like you're alone in this because like there's way more people that want to give you support rather than tear you down. Yeah. But I think you've got to, you've got to make that noise really. I mean, one day I will shut down my Twitter and it will be a Love Island fan account. Yeah, okay. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that either. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> and finally, finally, yeah. you tweeted about uh, the, the big backlash that Game of Thrones got for the ending yeah. for the final season. Like, let's call it spade a spade. That Like, it wasn't, I don't think it was personally very well done right, right, season right. eight. See, I've never seen very much of it. So I was totally commenting as just like a general being like, yeah. do you know what? I feel quite bad. Just because I, we share a lot of the same crew. Yeah. Because they're both filmed in Belfast. Sure. Um, also, just um, to sh- call out the Game of Thrones actors, we took over like a lot of their apartments and they definitely had a few too many parties <laughs> I think, at the end of their series. So I was like, stains on the walls. Hole in my, yeah, there was a hole in my wall of my apartment. I was like, that was um, Kit Harrington. I don't know if it's a Kit Harrington. I'd say Kit Harrington window. had a fancier apartment than I had. Yeah, probably. Probably. Let's call um, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spade a spade. Kit Harrington's apartment probably had like a jacuzzi in my Yeah. <laughs> But I just, yeah, because I know they did like a 40, I never heard you say this because I said to people, a 40 day night shoot. I think 40, that, I think, I think, 40 night night shoot. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's confusing. 40 day, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just like, oh God, so much goes into it. And it's just, I, I guess it was, more I guess so it was get, so, getting, the it petition was, getting them to reshoot it. I was like, oh, well, that was daft. Yeah, yeah. That was entitled nonsense. But, but yeah. I guess because it was so, it was so intricately crafted for so long. Right, right. I know it was so beloved. And, and like, then it appears that it, it, the showrunners, it just had other commitments. Is the Star Wars thing, and they like weren't they offered more money by HBO to do an extra two episodes, no and they way. turned it down oh on account God. of scheduling. So yeah, I, I, as I said, I was I was really commenting, going, I don't really know much about the show, but I know everyone loves it. But I was like, don't know, it's still a triumph. No, totally, yes. totally. And I, but I think I wanted to make sure that I was like, you're totally entitled to this opinion. But I was like, I just feel that bad for them, yeah. you know. That was a long winded route <laughs> into have you even if, if it goes to season three, if it goes to season ten, have you thought about? the ending I know do you know what I just completely trust Lisa we're just in such safe hands there she knows she's and she said often in interviews she knows the point that she wants to get to just put all the pressure on Lisa but I have no idea genuinely how long we'll we'll keep going for one, oh my god one paper said this was like really mean one paper was like well who knows how long I can go on for Coughlin's already 32 <laughs> like, um 
was uh, like, I literally look like a baby. How dare you? Like, still, yeah, well done. Well done. <laughs> I'll be playing a teenager till I'm 45. So, no, I won't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. It's been a wild ride. Absolutely mental. Yeah. Amazing, though. I'm so, I'm very grateful. It's been a long road for me to get to this point. And I always want to say to people as well, I'm not, I've not made it because that is not a thing. That does not exist in acting. Like I finished, to get real, I finished filming Dairy Girl Series 2 the end of November and I'm not starting a new job till the end of June. Well, okay. So, I mean, I've done like little bits and things and we did a bunch of press, but what can look like, oh my God, you're being really successful. I'm like, yeah, but that's not like, a job we filmed that in a few weeks and yeah it's been fascinating oh thanks very much yeah no thank it's you it's been a delight to have you here it's really yeah, nice thank you for having me in your home home this is awesome yeah and my mom's really happy because I, I cleared up we have the uh, I was going to say I'll show you the robot hoover That's do you have everyone, one of those the things that does yeah so this is my petition to everyone buy your mum a robot hoover it's when I got it? my first like paycheck from Dairy Girls I was like I'm buying your robot hoover do they, I, I just feel like they just bang into stuff and break. No, they bang into stuff, but they've got little bump, bumpers on the sides yeah, yeah. and the brand is Eufy. But can they my, get into corners? Yeah, they've got little flipper thing. I'll put it, we can totally play the robot over. Let's go play the but robot But we treat hoovers. it like a pet. We're Class. like, we're like, where's Eufy? Where's Eufy gone? Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. As a final hurrah. Yeah. Would you do us the honour? It doesn't have to be anything beyond one sentence <laughs> of Claire. Even even that we enjoyed our carrot cake or whatever it may be. Do you know what I'm going to say? We really, really enjoyed our carrot cake. It was lovely. It was actually from Dublin. I've never had carrot cake from Dublin before. But I would say it was quite moist and really, really nice. And I quite like the cream on top of it. But I wouldn't want to eat too much because I don't want to get too full. Nick Lagoclin, it's been a pleasure. I love you. Goodbye. Love you. Goodbye. <laughs> so there you have it. That's episode four of Deep Diving. Thank you so much to the wonderful Nicola Coughlin. She was an open book and a delight to talk to. And thanks to her mum for her lovely hospitality. And then after we wrapped up the podcast, they took me to quite a famous seafood restaurant just outside Oran Moor called Morin's where we made the famous wall they take photos of, of clientele who come in and stick them on the wall I was obviously jockey backing on um, Nicholas fame but nonetheless up we go so that's good um, if you like the podcast please uh, subscribe share on your socials subscribing is free by the way it just literally means you get updated as soon as I or uh, notified as soon as I uh, upload a new episode so you don't miss one my guest on the show next week is the very handsome very swash uh, very debonair Brad, lead singer of The Vamps, who make uh, really radio-friendly pop tunes, massively successful. But there's a level of awareness with Brad that I'm looking forward to uh, unpicking and getting inside his, uh, his lovely mind. So we'll do that next week. Have yourself a fantastic few days and chat to you soon. Subscribe. Peace. <laughs>